Awesome. That is so cool. I love hearing your voices and sharing and singing. Those last two songs that we sang, I didn't sing with you. One, because I had the microphone on and you don't hear my voice that loud. Uh, number two is you ministered to my soul and that's just so cool. So uh, this is my bride, Nicole. Uh, we've been married 28 years and uh, that's an exciting and different thing these days, right? And Jeff said that I look older now, and, and the good thing is I feel older too. So, you know, it's, it's congruent. It's working together. But you're going to see some pictures in a couple of minutes where you're going to see that my beautiful bride of 28 years has not changed at all. I don't know her secret. I wish I knew this secret, but it's pretty impressive. So we think it's important to celebrate excellence. And one of the things that God does excellently sometimes is in marriage. Right? So today's topic is about marriage. And so what we'd like to do in a little bit of celebration is to have everyone who is married stand up, please. Oh, yeah. A couple of you jumped up. Good on you. I like it. I'm proud to be married, you said. All right. If you've been married one year or less, raise your hand for me. Yes, in the back. Outstanding. So all y'all up here, that's Southern for all y'all. All y'all up here need to be working with them folks, right? And so that's what, a little bit of what I'm going to talk about. We've got we to gotta find a way to get forward. Okay, married one year or less, sit down. Three year or less, sit down. Okay, no shame in that. None. It's good. Five or less. I knew it was going to happen with this crowd. I can see it. Five or less. All right, we're going to go in bigger increments now. Ten or less. Mm-hmm. Twenty or less. I can see this. I don't know where this is going already. 30 or less sit down. That's really something. Let's pause here for a moment. The people who just sat down have been married 30 years. Take note, one year or less. 40 or less sit down. Look how many people are still standing. Yeah, that's okay. You can applaud this. This is celebrating. I'm going to take a shot at this. I'm going to stop here. 50 or less sit. Um, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. I'm going to take a real risk here now because normally I'd start going up by ones or twos. 60 or less. Sit down. Is everybody standing? Yes, I love it. And I may be brave, but I'm not dumb. So we're going to go 61, 2. All right, we're whittling it down. Good job. 63. Woo, rarefied air here. 64. All right. So, Jean, yes, yeah, okay, it's Jean and your wife? Sally. Sally, yeah. How long have you been married? I'm sorry, at least 66 in August. Congratulations. Nicole has a little something for you. So uh, I was, I can't tell you how stunned I am to be standing on this stage. Jeff, would you bring up the first picture of me? <laughs> now you're stunned to see that I'm standing on this stage, right? Hey, this was us in 1988. I met Nicole when she was 14. She's not 14 in that picture, right? Uh, we married when we were 12. That's why we look so young. 
I married, I, I met Nicole when she was 14 years old, I was 15, I was in a high school youth group, she was serving, I was serving, we uh, actually by that point we weren't, but we, we in the next couple of years, and I met Nicole, and immediately, I mean at 15 years old, I knew instantly, there's no way I was going to marry this woman. <laughs> she was not my type. She was prim and proper and beautiful and wore nice clothes and she was appropriately dressed for church and all that. And I was coming in, no kidding, cut off shorts, long hair, as I've proven, right? I used to ride my bike to church in the, you know, those, those riding shoes. They're slippery on these, on these floors, so I had to take them off. So I'm walking around in socks. You can see the picture here, right? This was not going to happen. Well, some, one day I came out of church and there she was standing. I had, I'd known her for four or five years now. She was standing at the base of the hill and the, the light came down and from heaven and it really did. I could see it like my mind's eye. And here was this woman. I thought to myself, I actually said the words under my breath out loud. I said, I got to get to know this girl. I got to get to know this girl, right? And I did. Next one. Look at that. Yeah. All right, December of 1990, after a one-year engagement, we got married. As you can see, she has still not changed. I look a little different there because I shaved my long hair off. Uh, but that's exactly what I look like today, right, fellas? Uh, so we got married in 1990. We've, had, uh, we've been married 28 years. A good friend of mine, Billy, likes to say it feels like 10 minutes. Yeah, underwater. So uh, it's... And there's a reality behind that, right? The reality is that it's difficult. Marriage is difficult. And let me pause for just a second. I noticed that not everybody stood up when I asked for all the married folks to stand up. This message is for our singles and our divorced and for all of you. Because as I close the message, I'm going to tie this up with one very important point that I'm going to start with. And that is that our relationships in life are a picture to the world of how good God is to us. Our relationships in life are a picture to the world of how good God is to us. In Christianese, we say we give glory to him, right? Give glory. In, in my world, and I was a product of public education, so that's how I say it, right? So Nicole and I have had a wonderful 28-year marriage. Without problems, hardly. At about week three, I knew something was wrong, right? Uh, at... <laughs> it should include me in a whole lot earlier. I should have known at minute one she was in trouble. Uh, and that's really true. I'm not trying to be self-deprecating. It's, it's common for men to be self-deprecating of themselves these days, especially in media and all. Uh, and the truth is that I brought real baggage to the, to the marriage. Nicole came from a beautiful Christian home, amazing parents, people that I love. God bless them. They passed away a couple of years ago. These were amazing people. She came from a great family. I came from a broken family and a, a product of divorce, a late divorce. I was on my own. I was homeless, living in my car at 18 years old, left home with five bucks in my pocket. A little baggage, you might think, right? And to blend these two people into one unit is challenging. It's difficult. God's up to that challenge, though, right? And at three weeks, we knew we were in trouble. And at the one-year point, we were a four-alarm fire. Even if we didn't really know it yet, we were asleep to that. By year three of marriage, in 1993, we were meeting with a gal named Joyce. Joyce was our counselor. We spent 15 or 18 months with her. A lot of that time we spent together was fixing me, working on my damaged love receptors. Our, our love receptors like radar, right? We, it puts out energy. It brings energy back in. And when we shine that out, whatever reflects back 
is, is how we see things. It's like a flashlight, right? And I discovered and I was told that my love receptors were damaged because of the abuse that I suffered, because of the challenges that I faced, because of the things I did as a youngster that were not in accordance with God's word. I didn't know anything about God's word at that point in time. But these things are still baggage, right? So I had damaged love receptors, but just like a radar or a flashlight, I also had damaged love transmitters. And I was not transmitting to my wife any sort of biblical love. I wanted to. I've been a Christian now at that point for eight or nine years. I wanted to do that. I wanted to show her what Christ was about. I promised her at one point I would never divorce her, right? I'm happy to report that here we are 28 years later. Jeff, bring up the next one if you would. That's our family today. Minus one. Uh, our, and I, I had another picture and I should have put, sent that one. We are the fortunate, uh, blessed folks of a daughter-in-law, and I don't even like the in-law part of it. Haley's an amazing woman of God. Uh, she's in many ways uh, just as amazing a woman of God like as Nicole. And so I'm so blessed and so thrilled that we've added her to our family. So that's kind of who we are in background. I'd like you to uh, sit back for a moment now, and we're going to talk a little bit about the world's recipe and the world's plan for marriage. We're going to contrast that to God's recipe and plan for marriage, and we're going to run into a little bit of communication. We were going to talk about conflict, but Jeff covered that really, really well, and then we're going to wrap it up with maybe a couple of tools and how we can do that. So let's watch this real clip. you loved mom? Forget about me and mom. Are you going to marry him? Probably. Listen, I'm crazy about the guy. He's smart, he's aggressive, he could carry parish communications into the 21st century and be along with it. Mm-hmm. So what's wrong with that? That's for me. I'm talking about you. It's not what you say about Drew, it's what you don't say. Maybe you're not listening. Oh, yes, I am. There's not an ounce of excitement, not a whisper of a thrill. This relationship is all the passion of a pair of titmice. I want you to get swept away. I want you to levitate. I want you to sing with rapture and dance like a dervish. Oh, that's all? Yeah, be deliriously happy. Please leave yourself open to me. Okay. Be deliriously happy. I shall, uh, I shall do my utmost. <laughs> I know it's a cornball thing. But love is passion. Obsession. Someone you can't live without. <laughs> I say... Fall head over heels. Find someone you can love like crazy and who will love you the same way back. How do you find him? Well, you forget your head and you listen to your heart. I'm not hearing any heart. Because the truth is, honey, there's no sense living your life without this. To make the journey and not fall deeply in love. Well, you haven't lived a life at all. But you have to try. Because if you haven't tried... 
you haven't lived. Bravo. Oh, you're tough. <sighs> I'm sorry. Okay. Give it to me again, but the short version this time. Okay. Stay open. Who knows? Lightning could strike. see some of the recipe. It's a great movie, by the way. I love this movie. Meet Joe Black is one of my favorites, and we could talk about it for a while. There are some elements in here, but can you see a Genesis story playing out in here? You know how this movie ends. It ends like every other movie. This, week, this movie takes place out over a span of about four or five days to a week, right? And in this, she then goes to meet a beautiful young man, and they get to know each other very briefly, but there's an immediate, I mean, an instant connection. And the next scene that I typically show is there's just an instant connection. And they get that ooey-gooey thing going on inside. And from there, they sleep together. And then they introduce one another to friends and family. And you can see that they, they, there's a pattern, right? And I see a little bit of the Garden of Eden in here. I see a little bit of Genesis in here in that there's truth in here. We should be passionate about our relationships. We should dance like a dervish. These are good things, but these are outcomes, I would tell you, right? So let's take a look at what God would say about this. In the movie, we get love is passion, it's obsession, someone you can't live without, the excitement, the thrill, gets swept away to levitate, right? Sing with rapture, dance with a, like a dervish. And in the end, he tells us, forget your head, listen to your heart. Wow, there's goodness there, followed by don't think about what you're doing. Just follow your heart. Be passionate. Again, outcome. In 1996, I was a pilot training student at Advanced Air Force Base in Oklahoma. I was now living my dream. I was 27 years old. I was pretty excited about finally achieving a dream, a boyhood dream, since I was a young child, wanting to be up in the skies and chasing other airplanes around. I was flying the T-38. I was, it's a very high-performance afterburning jet engine. Oh, it's cool. Everything should have afterburner. I'm telling you, it's just cool, right? So I, I was about seven months into this program, and it was my turn that day to fly this and demonstrate to instructor that I had studied well, that I had practiced well, and I was ready to go do things. And so on the board, a little whiteboard in the classroom, it was my job to write down the objectives of the day. Objectives, things like I'm going to enter, I'm going to complete a loop by entering at the airspeed that's appropriate, plus or minus 10 knots. Then I'm going to exit that loop, plus or minus 500 feet of the altitude, and the airspeeds are right. Things like on approach, I'm going to maintain plus 5 knots or minus 5 knots, plus 100 feet above the minimum altitude, minus 0 knots below the. It's a good thing when a pilot doesn't get below the minimum altitude, right? So these are the kinds of objectives that are to be written on the board. And what did I write? Under or above those, I can't remember, but somewhere on the board I wrote the words, have fun. <laughs> yeah, I heard it. Somebody said oops. And the instructor did something that was really awesome. Something an instructor does is to help you see the error of your ways. And this particular instructor was good in that he helped me see the error of my ways in a very gentle and kind and compassionate way. And he said, hey, Bob, I love that you've put that on the board. I think that's awesome. Flying should be fun. I know you've been dreaming about it since you were this tall. And here you are, flying a high-performance afterburning jet airplane. You're achieving your dreams. It's wonderful. Having fun is an outcome, not an objective. Dancing like a dervish. 
having great passion, having, am I allowed to say this in the Baptist church? Having great sex is an outcome, not the ingredients. In your handout, you'll see that there are a couple of triangles, and we're going to fill those in briefly. These come from Chip Ingram. So he's a, a great uh, speaker. If you bring the triangles up, Jeff, I'll get to that one in just a moment. Thanks. Hey, it's a, I'm going to give credit to where credit is due. These are uh, Chip Ingram's um, uh, anecdotes. I'm going to put my spin on them, my thoughts on them, but I want, I want you to know that there are great resources out there for you to work on things. And one of the things that we heard was that in the clip was that we should forget with our head and listen with our heart, right? Forget with our head. He actually said this, love is, love is passion. Love is passion. What is love for real, though? Jeff, a couple of weeks ago, told us that love is a rugged commitment to the well-being of others. Love is a rugged commitment to the well-being of others. Chip Ingram puts a little spin on that. It was on the slide a moment ago, but I want you to concentrate on what's up here for a moment. He said, love is giving to that other person what they need the most when they deserve it the least at great personal cost. Love is giving to that other person what they need the most when they deserve it the least at great personal cost. Isn't that what Jesus did to us? In that while we were yet sinners, while, while, in the act of, while we were beating him up, not you and me, but our sin, for sure, was beating him up and crucifying him to the cross, while he was separating from his father, a perfect union between those two that had never been broken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that ripped apart in the moment when the father had to turn from his son because his son became sin for you and me. What we needed the most but we deserved it the least. And how great was that cost? I think it's a great picture of that. So the world would tell you that, is that me doing that? Me? Okay. The world would tell you that we start with the physical. What's an example of the physical, right? Attraction. You see it in the magazines. You see it in everything that you watch on television. A, a commercial, a sports program, a movie. This movie, right? Look at the people that were in that movie. Anthony Hopkins, for a guy that's a little older than me, he's a good-looking man, but that woman was beautiful, right? And if you know the movie, Brad Pitt's the other guy. These are one percenters, point one percenters. We can't do that, and that's what you see all the time in the movies. That's what you see in all sorts of media. The world would tell us that you've got to, you start with the physical. I flew with a flight attendant not too long ago who was explaining to me her broken relationships, and she says, but the good thing is, is I've met this new guy. And he's 6'2", and he's really muscular. Oof, he's hot. That was her first comment about the new guy. We start there. The world has told us to start there. Over and over and over again. Then we go to infatuation, right? This, this feeling stage. Things that we're feeling about that person. As Chip would say, the ooey-gooey part of it. And then from there, we move on to the psychological. We might get to know each other, but it lacks transparency. Right? You go to Starbucks and you talk about life and things, but it's not about us at the soul level, slowly revealing and opening. And there's nothing wrong with slowly opening and revealing, but we've got the triangle potentially upside down. And then we get into canned social settings, right? We're going on dates. 
We're going to spend time together dating. And then ultimately, as a person decides, as a couple decides that they want to be married in the world, somehow they recognize, even without church, even without Christ, even without messages of his great love for us flowing into their lives, they recognize that this union, this thing called marriage, is special and it's spiritual. And then they report to a church somewhere, often, not always, and they say, hey, pastor, we'd like to be married before you, before others, and, and, and maybe before God. God's plan, next slide, please, is that we would invert that triangle, right? How about we start with the spiritual? I, I didn't do this intentionally. Nicole and I have met, I told you, I, I've got a lot of baggage. In, in the right time, in the right setting, I would tell you that I, I came from a great background of hurt and pain. My parents didn't know it, by the way, okay? That wasn't their fault. I'm not laying blame on anybody. I did a lot of it to myself. But Nicole and I met at a youth group. I could see her heart. She was a believer. We were like-minded. So I, I think the first part is that we would be believers together. We have a common ground. I know of a young couple right now. He's of Christian faith. We come from Utah. She is of LDS faith. That is going to be a place at some point if they are committed to their beliefs, that is at some point going to raise some conflict. It, it's not common, although it sounds very similar in place. So starting with the spiritual, and then we move on to the social, right? Like Nicole and I, we saw each other in the social setting of the youth group. I watched how she interacted with the other ladies. I watched how she mentored, we didn't call it back then, girls who were just two years younger. That's why all y'all, I learned that in Alabama when I was there twice, I had to go back to get the language down, should be working with the folks in the back of the room. That's why the 60-pluses should spend time with the 30-pluses, and the 30-pluses should spend time with the 10-pluses. And the 10-pluses, hey, the, one of the most influential couples in my life was a 10-pluser. Just got a text from them this morning as they are celebrating their 40th next month. And they talked to us before we were married. They talked to us by example, in most cases, in a words when necessary. So we see each other in a social setting. The next thing is the psychological, right? Now, what kind of, for, I grew up in a, in a home that valued work ethic. What's their work ethic? How do they spend their time? What's important to them? Their dreams, their passions, right? And that blows or, or flows into the emotional part of that. I want to know who Nicole is. I want to know her at that deeper level, who she is at the emotional level. What are her hopes and dreams for the future? But we have to be careful. The world tells us, go with those motions. That flight attendant I told you about a moment ago, oh man, she was, her heart was thumping. She had gone right to the physical in her mind and into the emotional and following those. I am an incredibly emotional person. I love my emotions. I love them. And I followed them for a long time. They're good, but they're God-given, and they have a right place. Let's follow the Lord. This is where Anthony Hopkins tells us that lead with the head or follow with your head, not with your, or follow with your heart, not with your head. Oh, no, no, no. The heart is good, but the head is good and better for us when we're making these kinds of decisions. And then ultimately, under the, under the applause of heaven, after marriage, we can introduce the physical part of it. 
I asked my kids, would you set fire in the living room? Would you go in the backyard and grab some of the wood pile and bring it out and set fire in the living room? And they go, no, Dad, that's dumb. I mean, what would be the problem? Well, you'd burn up the carpet. Yes, you would. What else would happen if we didn't do anything? You'd probably burn down the house. Yes, you would. And then what would happen? The fire department would come. And then what would happen? I'd kill you. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, was that outside voice? <laughs> I have three amazing young boys. Please don't let me say anything bad about them. If I do, it's just me rubbing guys that I love so much. And in addition to being my sons, they, they're my buddies. They really are. We all set fires in our living room, don't we? I mean, if you have a fireplace, you do. In other words, the fire, when contained and placed in the proper place in the proper time, gives warmth to the home. It brings comfort to the home. We can rally around it. We can enjoy it. The physical intimacy is part of that. And it's God-designed. Okay, so if the world's recipe is the inverted triangle, if we start with the physical and we finally acknowledge God, and if God's design for marriage is that we would start with the spiritual, start with him, and then allow the physical and go through all those things, allow the physical to be, we need to be able to communicate those things to one another, right? Communication is an incredibly important part of the process, right? And as Chip Ingram likes to say, Communication is the highway that love travels on. Communication is the highway that love travels on. Now, we can communicate in many ways, right? Not too long ago, my son left for college. It's four years ago now. He's graduated, married. It's wonderful. About four years ago, he was leaving for college, and I struggled. I told you it was emotionally difficult. It was, I'm a very emotional person, and it was difficult to see him leave. Very difficult for me to see him leave. And one night, not because he was leaving, but because I realized now that this 18-year-old young man that I wanted to pour into, wanted to invest in, there were so many missed opportunities, opportunities I meant to take that I didn't take. And now I was mourning that inside. And I, I, on a couple of occasions late at night, I'd wake up sobbing. Sobbing. And we, and Nicole got on the highway of communication with me and she grabbed me just pulled me in tight and let me know she loved me without saying a word so communication isn't only words in fact communication words only make up about seven percent of communication i would like you to tell me this is your wife husbands to you i would like you to tell me that you love me more. I do love you. No, no, I, I, I want you to tell me I love you. You know, I, I'm more, well, I love you. I told you I love you. Well, I, yeah, but I understand, but I, it's just, it's more frequent. I, I'd like to know that you love me a lot. Honey, I just told you I love you. I will tell you I love you as often as you want me to tell you I love you. Is this enough now? Have I told you I love you? Now, if you read that as a transcript without the emotion involved in it, that you can hear my voice, you'd be like, hey, Bob, that's awesome. This guy's cool. Look how many times he just told his wife he loved her, right? How about voice inflection and body language? I love you. How much am I communicating when I do that? It's about 30 to 40% of communication is, is the nonverbals, right? Body language has an awful lot to do with that. There are generally three kinds of communication. And in the military, we talk about wanting... Communication is that I have something in my head and you have something 
a canvas in your head, and I need to paint my information onto your head in a way that you can understand it. I need to, we have a shared mental model, we said in the military. And there's generally five different levels of communication. The first one is cliche. This is, hi, how are you? Everybody tell me the answer. Fine, right? Me, it's living the dream. If you ask me, if you found me in the hallways, if you ask me otherwise, I'm so programmed at this point, you say, hey, Bob, how you doing? I said, living the dream. Living the dream, thank you very much, how are you, right? Now, I'm luring you, you don't know that when I do that, I'm luring you into follow-on subsequent levels. I, it's my intent when I say that because that brings a visceral response. In fact, sometimes people say, yeah, well, nightmares are dreams too. Yeah, that's not the kind of dream I'm talking about. The next level after cliche is that we're exchanging facts with one another. How's the weather? It's nice. It's about 72 degrees. Winds are out of the southwest at nine miles an hour. It's partly cloudy. It's jacket weather. I do this in the airplane, can you tell? Well, welcome to my airline. It's uh, part of my job. So facts and opinions, but there's no threat anywhere in here, right? They're safe. Levels three to five then lead to intimacy. So level three, opinions and ideas. This is when you begin to share your goals and your dreams and your hopes for the future. Level four, feelings and emotion. This is getting risky. We talked about this weekend. By the way, thank you so much for the folks that spent some time with us this weekend. I just commissioned them a, a few minutes ago because we spent a little more time together. You now have more information than you did before. You're excited about the future, hopefully, of your marriage. And there may even be some raw emotions. Take that and go forward. Go into your community and do things. Just like you've been invited to go with the other two churches in this community and go serve. Go serve. That's awesome. And I'll finish with something like that at the end. So feelings and emotions. I feel messages. I feel hurt when you do X, Y, or Z. Not I feel like you're a jerk. That's not what we're saying, right? I feel hurt, Bob, when you show up 30 minutes late for dinner that I've prepared and, and set up for the night. It's an act of love for you, towards you. I feel hurt. I feel like you don't love me. I feel fill in the blank. And then level five, this is unhindered communication. Unhindered, right? I can say anything. It is knowing everything there is to know about me, and you still love me. Everything. Remember, love is that rugged commitment to the well-being of others. There is not one thing in my life that my bride doesn't know about me. Nothing. Some of that was revealed before we were married, but it's been the slow peeling off of the emotional clothing over the years to demonstrate to her who I am. Level five, that's where we're trying to go. So let's take a quick look, a very quick look at some of the examples of, from Scripture about what it looks like to travel on the highway of love. The first thing love, and love does many things, but the first thing love does is protects. Remember that story after David and Goliath, and David is growing in renown, and Saul, after a while, decides that he wants to kill David, the guy he liked, the guy he had played music for him, the guy that they fought together, and then David is getting somewhere around. He, Saul killed his thousands, David killed his ten thousands, right? And what happens is Jonathan, who is Saul's son, is a super buddy with David. And he, he says, hey, bro, I know my dad's after you. You tell me your dad's after you, but I don't, I don't really think that's true. I'm going to get some backstory intel on this, and then I'll let you know. But I've got to communicate this to you in a way that 
man, I know you're a little scared, so why don't you hide out in a field? And while you're hiding in that field, I'm going to get a servant boy, and we're just going to do some arrow practice. I'm going, to, I'm going to fake this thing that we're going out and doing something. And if I shoot an arrow near you, to your side, to your left, to the right, that means everything's okay. But if I shoot it past you, man, that's a, that's a, that's a run after that arrow. Go the other way. Run away from here. Love protects, right? Love is not a contract. Love is a covenant. And you go, okay, great. That sounds like a very churchy thing to say. What does that mean? Very simply, contract means 50-50. Contract are the terms of an agreement that if violated, give us the terms for the reason we can leave, right? If, I, if you owe me money for a car and you don't pay me the money for the car, guess what? You get to repossess the car and the contract is terminated. A covenant is 100% and 100%. I vow to do something for you with no expectation in return. I promise to give to you what you need the most when you deserve it the least at great personal cost. So love protects. Another thing that love does is it speaks the truth in love. How does this dress look on me? It's the worst question in the world. Does this dress make me look fat? You can't win this, right? Honey... I love you. What do you need right now? You need my validation. At great personal risk, at great personal cost, right? All she wants to know is that for you in that moment, am I still pleasing to you? So the truth to the question that's just been asked is, yes, dear, you look beautiful. You look beautiful. No, I really want to know, should I wear this belt or not? Don't wear the belt. Okay, so speak the truth in love. And Jesus did this, right? He, he had that encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And after explaining to her the, that she could have water that would never cause her thirst again, Jesus wants to now dig in when she asks the question. He wants to dig in a little bit and he starts to expose some truth. And he says, well, how about you go get your husband and we'll talk about what this living water is that you'll never thirst about again. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. And he knows more than you and I know, but in in gentle terms. And there are exclamation marks in some of your versions. Remember that in the Greek and in the Aramaic and in the Old Testament and other places, there's no punctuation there, right? So don't read into it too much. I see an invitation here where he says, I know you don't have. You've had five. And the man you're with right now is not your husband. But nevertheless, the invitation is still there, right? He speaks the truth, but he does it in love and in compassion. He's not afraid to step in, but it's with compassion and love. So speaking truth in love is compassionate truth-telling. What else does love do? It achieves something that's greater than us. Jesus submitted himself to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that uh, one of the things that Jesus said to God in his prayer, his Father, was, if there's another way to get this done, can we please do that? Jesus was very human, right? I mean, he was fully God, but he was also fully human. And he knew that this event that he was about to experience was being incredibly painful. He also knew he was going to be separated from his father, a perfect union that he had never had before. 
but by submitting to his father. And submit can sometimes be a four-letter word in today's society, right? It's not. Submitting just means, it's the word hupotasso. It means that I submit myself under, I put myself under the authority, the willingness, but it's a teamwork thing. I've, I was the vice commander of a 3,000-man Air Force fighter wing in my last assignment. There was a commander above me, and he took me in, and we'd sit in meetings, and we'd talk, and we'd work together to solve issues or plan for the future and be excited for what we were doing. But when we left that room, he was the commander, and I was the guy towing the line. I was cheerleading him on the side. I was singing our message. I had a great commander. He allowed me the privilege of co-leading with him. But should something go wrong, who would be held responsible? The commander. Our big bosses were going to go to the commander if something went wrong. God's going to hold us men ultimately accountable for our marriages. So we can achieve greater things, greater than the individual parts. Obviously, if we communicate well, that sometimes leads to conflict. And in conflict, the one thing I would say here is that conflict is inevitable. And I'll only spend a second or two on conflict because we've got to get to final thoughts here. But conflict is inevitable. There's a, 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 just a terrible lie in the world that a conflict-free marriage is a good marriage. It's just simply not true. Jesus promised us conflict, right? A conflict-free marriage is a good marriage, and that's a lie from the pit of hell. Anthony Hopkins in, his mo- in this movie would tell us that love is passion, it's an s- obsession. You've heard these three words before about what love really is. Love is agape love, right? Another way of saying this is that we are fellow worshipers. We've already talked about what the, what the meaning, the definition, it's a rugged commitment to the well-being of others. That it's doing the very best for that other person when they deserve it the least at great personal cost. That's agape level love. It's the spiritual level love. It is fellow worshipers together. Nicole and I, this morning, singing, right? Fellow worshipers. It's also as buddies and best friends. That's phileo love, right? It's at the soul level now. In 1999, I went to Spain, spent about seven days on the ground. We were actually on the way to Kuwait, and one of our airplanes broke, so I had to stay there for a couple of days with another pilot. This pilot didn't want to go out and see the southern part of Spain for free. I don't understand that, but so we went out, I went out, I borrowed a car, and I, and I found some neat places, and I rolled up in this neat town called Ronda up on top of a hill, and I was looking over this beautiful view, and inside, for the first time, been married nine years, I'm a smart guy, I got married in a year, and ends in zero, so I know how many years I've been married, 18, it's 28, right, so uh, I'll know exactly what that is. But as I looked over the edge of this, I thought, something's missing here, what is it? And in this case, I was missing my best friend. What's interesting about that, though, is that I didn't know until that moment Nicole was my best friend. My buddy Sean had been my best friend, and my buddy Casey was a best friend. Still are great friends, by the way. I talked to them both again this morning. But Nicole is my very best friend. She's the, the person I want to do stuff with, right? As Chip Ingram says, fun covers a multitude of sins. Yes, the biblical part is love covers a multitude of sins, but fun is good too, right? And then lastly, a real intimacy is as lovers. God did an amazing thing here. I mean, he literally joins the two as one. In marriage, 
And, and Paul calls it a mystery in Ephesians, right? But it's also a revealed mystery. He's trying to give us a picture of what it's all about. Trying to give us a picture of what our relationship looks like. So how do we achieve this? I mean, how do we, how do we get this kind of thing? How do we get intimacy that is at the fellow worshiper level, at the best friend level, at the, at the lover level? How do we have communication that goes beyond, hi, how are you, living the dream? How do we get to beyond just exchanging facts with one another? How are the kids doing? They're okay. We run into seasons, and we've been there. Run into seasons where you're so busy doing the, the job, you're doing the kids' schedules, you're doing with it that you forget to love on one another. You forget to have intimacy with one another. And I'm not talking about only the physical. So how do we get there? And it takes hard work. In the, min, in the military, we talk about the application of resources to achieve a desired end state. The application of resources to the desired end state. It's the doing of something with something to get to a place that you wanted to be. So if I want to drive from New York to California with two dogs in the car and three kids, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but if you want to drive from California or New York to California, you got to start with the destination, right? So what's the vision for your marriage? Men, what is the vision for your marriage? What do you want it to look like? Then what resources do you have available? In 2004, when I was here, I was here from 2002 to 2005, and in 2004, a very good friend of mine was killed in a car accident. He and I had served in ministry together. He was in our wedding. He had Sammy Hagar hair. It was awesome. Dan was killed, and, and I remember what a refocusing moment that was. I've got to do something different. I've got to do something different in order to achieve this relationship with my family and my wife and my kids and with my relationship with the Lord. That's why, for me, the word is immersion. I immersed myself into the culture of God. I listen to Christian music almost exclusively. Not because of all the... I love 80s music. Still do. I'm old enough to like 80s music. I lived through that era, right? I still like that. But I immersed myself in that. I immersed myself in Bible study. I started a Bible study, a men's Bible study, actually a fighter pilot Bible study out at Lamore Naval Air Station because I'm super spiritual, because I knew a lot. No, I needed the fellowship. I created what I needed, the application of a resource to achieve a desired end state. I knew what I wanted to achieve. I wanted to be a man of God. It was very simple. I want a marriage that reflects God. On your screen, it says marriage is hard work. This is an expansion for me from, and I'll wrap it up very quickly. I know I'm taking some of your time, but this is an expansion of a phrase that we all have heard. Marriage is hard, period. And that's true. It's hard, but that just tells me all we're doing is enduring it. We're enduring the pain, the challenges, the frustrations, right? We're just enduring whatever it is at that moment. Hard work means that I'm going to get in and I'm going to do something about it. And I'm not going to tell you, what, I'm going to tell you though, I've told you today the why we're going to do things. I'm even starting to tell you a little bit about the what, but now it's, it's your job. It's our job every Sunday to take that why and that what and go find a how. If all you do is like I did for many of the first years of my Christian life and sit in the seats as a youngster, as a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid, new Christian out of another religion, and I sit in the chairs like our young people are over here, it's so awesome to see them here. And if all I do is absorb in on a Sunday and I don't go out and 
apply later on. I'm missing the point. So grab a book. You say, which book? Any of them. Any marriage book and read it together. Any Chip Ingram series on DVD or on online. It's worth the 28 bucks. Download it. It's okay. Do something. It is hard work. It's worth the hard work. And that brings us to the next part. Marriage is worth the effort. Marriage is worth the effort. I watched my parents divorce at 25 years. Broke me. I ended up homeless as a result of it. Not because of something they did. I choose, chose to leave home. It hurt so deeply. Nobody wants divorce, right? I know there are divorced people in this room. I know there are divorced and remarried people in this room. I'm not picking on you. I'm not at all. I know there's great pain in there. And where you are today in your marital status, drive. Drive with the legs. Do the hard work part of it. It's worth doing. God is behind you. He wants to do something. That brings us to last couple of points. God designed marriage for two reasons in my mind. And I think there's probably a lot of them, but I'm going to highlight two of them. One is, it gives us a glimpse of the relationship to God. God gives us multiple relationships in life. Friends, that's interesting, right? Jesus said, I am your friend. He gives us brothers and sisters. He says, I am your brother. He gives us marriage, and he says, I'm the bridegroom, and you are the bride. It's a picture of our relationship to him. He says so. Read Ephesians chapter 5 and see how he links back to Ephesians chapter 3 where he says the church is this mystery that we didn't understand before and your marriage looks like that. It's a great relationship. Picture to who he is. But here's what I think the key to what marriage is really all about. It is that we would, in Christian dictionary terms, that we would give glory to God as the screen says here, to show the world through our marriages just how good God is. A well-lived life to my unmarried and my marrieds. A well-lived marriage gives God great credit. Had a flight attendant in my cockpit the other day, talked with her 25 years, told me she was about, I was telling her I was going to do this. And she says, I just told my husband we were going to get divorced. 25 years. And then she asked me, what is the secret? Oh, by the way, that's a tough answer. To, uh, you got a half hour, right? What is the secret to a great marriage? It's hard work. But she was really interested in what I had to say right then because she could see the light and the fire in my eyes, the passion with which I live my marriage. And that leads to natural conversations that go, well, what is it about you? Why are you like that? Well, because God is so good. Our good marriages point to a good God. Our great marriages point to a great God. Are we perfect in that? No. Are we perfect at achieving the ideals and the great ideas of the Constitution of the United States? No, but they are our ideals. It is what we're shooting for. It's what we're after. This book has the ideals. It has the great tools and truths of what we're after and this is what we measure ourselves against and when we give ourselves the chance to be measured against this in our marriage in our relationships with our neighbors we do amazing things i'm at 38 minutes and i apologize okay and normally that you're used to a shorter message but i'm going to finish with a couple of thoughts that were that came right before this one is forgiveness 
Let me tell you that Nicole and I do not have a perfect marriage. And I'll just give you one phrase that I hope is meaningful to you. And that is, the view from the top of the mountain whose name is forgiveness is worth the hike. The view